Welcome to DexGuru Talk Show. DexGuru is your DeFi trading terminal. Charting, on-chain analytics, trading, the most effective for your routing with zero X API. At DexGuru Talk Show, we talk about people and projects in DeFi, Web3, and crypto. My name is Roman, and I am the host. We are conducting a series of interviews with people who build the future of decentralized finance. We are all human beings. At least we like to think so. We believe that people follow people when they make trading and investing decisions. Therefore, we focus on the person, not current news. And today we want to focus on our incredible guest, Ivan from Gearbox Protocol. Without further ado, let's begin. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Exciting to have you here. Thank you for inviting me, Roman. Me too. appreciate it. To start us, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and give you a bit of a background about yourself. Uh, sounds good. Yeah, so I joined the space just one cycle ago in 2017, end of the year. Uh, I was on the side of marketing at first. Uh, it quickly grew boring for me because I wasn't able to get involved with the projects properly. Uh, so then the bear market hit. I was at a Dutch blockchain project throughout that. Uh, and as things were recovering, I was already like doing some things in DeFi. Uh, was in Lobster DAO chat, so we just research. And so I went to Angel for about like... Uh, a year, I think. But again, Angelin, even though you do work with founders, you are not actually building something yourself. Uh, so then last year in February, met Mikhail and Ilgis from Gearbox Protocol, who I have been working with uh, since then. So a bit more than a year now. So basically, current thing is that uh, I still Angel around. I guess everybody does, so nothing new in that. And uh, full-time in Gearbox Protocol. And I guess part-time in Lobster DAO, uh, just 24-7 reading, researching, and things like that. So like being involved in the space uh, instead of just gambling around, if that's the short intro. Our listeners would love to hear a bit of how you got into DeFi initially. What attracted you to this industry and uh, what were you up to before? You were on the programming side or what was your focus? I don't know, marketing thing. So uh, unfortunately, my IQ is pretty low, meaning that I cannot code and I, I cannot do math. So the, anything that soft skill is left after that. Um, so that was my background, essentially, marketing, community, DAO, biz dev, right? Like, they are all very much intertwined, fundraising and things like that. It's all uh, fairly close to each other, apart from the technical work. Um, what attracted to DeFi, well, it, during the bear market, it was the only narrative alive that really had any potential, because uh, there weren't too many incentives, but people were already playing with the capital. Uh, it made sense what it was doing. It was something real, because in the previous cycle, it was all about... I don't know, IoT machines, you know, like installing chips in your coffee machine and uh, somehow using the blockchain then. And it just didn't feel real because none of it ever went through. It was all POCs with the government. It was dead boring, honestly. Uh, DeFi was something real, tangible, and so on. Um, yeah. Still in DeFi, actually. I mean, I do follow NFTs, but uh, I'm uh, more a fan of DeFi, of course. I guess as you would be as well. And what was your moment in transition to DeFi? What was the point of no return? Mm, good question. I think one of the funnest moments was the launch of Curve Finance. So it was launched, it wasn't launched in Lobster DAO, but it was portrayed by anonymous developers to have been done so because the address of the deployer was 0x Lobster DAO, uh, which obviously, like, if you generate such a complex name, you likely uh, you, you basically can't even get the keys for that, right? If you, let's say, even make a phrase, you 
can try to throw it there, but there is a zero chance you have the keys to that. Because it was the entire point, I think, that developers tried to portray. Uh, and I think when it was just launched, the ATYs were like, what, I think a million a second or something like that. Uh, because there was no UI, everybody was trying to research on chain. Uh, the UI was buggy as hell. You couldn't even do anything unless you go to some ether scan, you connect your MetaMask, you then approve some contract, give another approval and things like that. So it was very fun because for me, it seemed really advanced, even though for developers, of course, it's very trivial stuff these days. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's, uh, having an edge is fun and DeFi allows you to find that edge. Uh, basically that, I think. And what was DeFi like when you started compared to now? What changed in sentiment? Mm, I think the, num- the general user, ba- like with any industry, if the industry grows, uh, your participation, KPIs, user base, everything grows as well, right? But unless, unlike OG community at the very beginning where people really took control of their things, people were like, yes, not, it's not your Bitcoin. Now everybody is a fan of a slick interface, uh, a button, KYC, and then everything works for you. Um, that, that's totally normal. So as any industry grows, that is logical to happen. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's different to that extent, that it's a more, uh, it's a more developed industry now. Still very, very small, but, of course, more developed than in the first days. Although, in the recent month, because DeFi has had a downturn due to people only caring about NFTs, um, it has come back a bit to that sentiment of, uh, let's say, shadowy coders in a way as it was called, I think, by somebody. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not that much different, but people are a bit more entitled. But that's normal to happen. Can you please explain me like I'm five, and our listeners as well, uh, Gearbox at a high level? What is it, what uh, Gearbox does, who uses it, and why? Uh, it's a generalized leverage protocol. Ge- leverage meaning it can give you more capital than you have. Generalized it means it can be applied to practically anything. So if you know how leverage works in traditional finance, all the same on sexes, right, of centralized exchanges, you take some, you take a leverage position like short or long, and then you pretty much just can't do anything with it, right? You can't take the capital out while it's there, you can't do anything with it. With Gearbox protocol, you can come to the protocol, and then you can take leverage and apply it on the protocols in DEXs that you already use a lot. For example, you can X5 trade on Uniswap. You can extend farm in Curve. Uh, or convex that is upcoming as well, and things like that. And while doing that, your positions are composable. Uh, what it means, it slightly probably sounds a bit complex, but what it means is that after you, let's say, open a short, what is opening a short? You basically borrow more WBTC, right? Let's say short on Bitcoin. You borrow more WBTC if it's on Ethereum, and you sell it. So if you borrow the X5, you have like an X5 short. If you want to centralize the changes, that would be the only thing you would be able to do. That's it, right? That's the end of your journey. Then you either make money or lose money. Here, because of how the protocol is structured and every user having their own account on chain, you can then, after selling that WBTC, let's say, to USDC, which means you open the short, you can then put USDC into farming. So essentially, now you have a short that is farming in wire and convex or curve at the same time. So you could get a self-repaying short. And after you put the position, let's say, in curve, the LP tokens you get in curve, you can put somewhere else. Uh, yeah, as long as the list of these protocols that are integrated with Gross, that's what the composable leverage entails, then you can do a lot of interesting things there. 
can you share with us what's the product backstory? How did you come up with that idea? Uh, so I'm not the builder myself. Uh, it's all thanks to Mikhail uh, 0x Miko on Twitter. He is the original uh, developer and founder. Um, he was participating in hackathons for about two years during their market and has worked with many different architectures and projects, which gave him such a strong background. And he came up with it during Eve Global Market Make uh, last January, February, so a bit more than a year ago. And then I was randomly connected by a friend of mine who I met uh, just beginning of crypto. And then we all three decided to work on it. And since the end of last year, uh, there is already uh, not a large DAO, but it's not small either. So a pretty comfy DAO uh, working on a bunch of different things. And uh, how did this idea was validated at first steps? Um, the, the, if you're asking about PMF, that one is still like in exploration, which is probably true for even large DeFi protocols because uh, PMF is like a is a magic unicorn that nobody even really understands what it is. But the validation was that, uh, of course, before a product is made, right? The only validation you can get is looking at what the users would potentially want. They're just doing some user screening, as to say, nothing like complex like QA or anything like that, but just like simple questions, ideas, and things like that. And leverage being done in a decentralized way and being composable is not something that existed really before because you do have, let's say, perpetual DEXs, you do have some derivatives, you can go long or short something, but then your position after you go long or short is, is let's say, is stolen, so it's just there, it's idle, it, you can't do anything further with it. Usually you can't really. Here you can go leverage something, then put that position into something else and build really complex strategies. So it's less of, less of an end product of just going in long or short, but more so a primitive for other developers and protocols to also integrate with it. And yeah, so it's not that huge just yet. We've been working on V1, which had really low limits for the TVL, uh, which were imposed for the sake of security to really test it, audit. And after going through audit number five at this point, V2 should be live in around May, mid-May, I would say. Uh, did Gearbox uh, get the funding to build? Um, so st first half a year, uh, no, first few months we were building without the funding. And then there was a small contribute around uh, mid last year. It wasn't so for funding. It was more so that to pay for the uh, countless audits and to essentially pre-fund the DAO before things really get falling. So essentially the, the contributor fund that was there is now being used, uh, is now will be used to fund the external contributors from the DAO and for the audit. So it's less so funding because 2M uh, is not really much rate. Uh, the raises these days are much, much higher, but we wanted to be more lean rather than just going for a huge race at the very early beginning. What went into building the product? How long did it take from start uh, after MVP to release on mainnet? Ah, good point. Mm. This is um, a thing that everybody approaches differently. So uh, in Gearbox case, the alpha version was ready really in April. By end of May, there was something that you could actually deploy play with. But then, okay, we, were, we had to wait for the audits because we booked with the quite highly respectable firms. They usually have a really long backlog. So while doing that, we optimized the architecture, the interface a bit, and things like that. And uh, so it took about from alpha, let's say, from hackathon version, which was February, it really majorly improved up until May. 
But in May, the raw architecture and ideas stayed. So after then, for half a year, it was security, gas optimization, and other improvements to December. And from December, it was mainnet. So let's say nine months, uh, including audits. Uh, and it was done just by one person, Mikhail himself. He coded everything. And the code base is pretty complex. It's all open source, so you can look at the, the audits and stuff like that. And from December to now, till two weeks ago, uh, he was working on V2 because after V1, it was clear that for some things we want to achieve, some core optimizations need to be made. So now we are redoing audits again. Uh, but after V2, uh, it, the core structure should stay as is, at least for now. Um, to give a bit more context on this, if, 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 if you don't mind, uh, let's say bigger protocols, the lesson they always give, though, is not to optimize too much, but really build something raw, launch it, try, of course, make it secure, but really try to find that inflection point that hits the PMF, the TVL, and the trading going, whatever your protocol does, basically. Because if you start optimizing for small things and constantly try to be perfect, first of all, you will never be perfect, right? Things always change, code bases change. Uh, even in all the protocols, things do change, except in Bitcoin. Um, so as such, you shouldn't be micro-tasking in that way at first before you hit the point where you understand, oh, okay, this stuff can really get going, and then you really optimize harder. But every startup developer, every startup team always optimizes for small things, but they learn sooner or later. So even if you know it, you still <laughs> fall into the trap. Since you mentioned optimization, uh, even one month is a long period in fast-paced crypto space. How has the crypto landscape evolved while you were building the product, and uh, does it affect what decisions you've made on scope or features? Definitely. Um, <laughs> point. So, because there is not much competition in this segment, at least in this kind of new primitive, that didn't really affect what was launching or where. Um, I would say there are a couple of things that really influence teams these days when it comes to the launch. First of all, is where to deploy. So many teams have changed their mind from any different L2 sidechain or L1 chain. So that one is quite a question. We decided to just go main Ethereum for now. Uh, didn't want to fragment around. So we didn't, we weren't influenced by that despite when the gas costs were really high. Uh, we just didn't feel like jumping somewhere else is really the right thing to do. Uh, and the second thing is that the teams get influenced by is, uh, so we don't, we didn't, we don't have the final tokenomics version yet because it's up to the DAO to figure out the final one. It's never good to rush it too early. But teams have been changing their architectures and designs more to replicate the V model because V model due to curve, convex and others have been quite a striking and favorite thing among degenerates. Um, so as such, teams do get influenced by it. As for other products and other things that Influences, um, I guess most teams are also trying to go a bit more unknown now for compliance and safety reasons. And they're also trying to, at least they should be trying to decentralize as much of the architecture as possible. Because end of the day, any centralized point, even an interface, becomes dangerous, right? It, and of course, it depends on what kind of services you provide. But for DeFi protocols, you better, of course, decentralize every core piece of the infrastructure, be it front-end, back-end, uh, and, of course, throw it all on-chain, basically. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. Talking about dangers, I'm sure listeners would like to know more about how did you handle security in the gearbox? Which precautions were taken? 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's all of course thanks to Mikhail and Ugis who are more on the technical side. Uh, but basically, we took the time to be launching later, but to really do audits at first. So we did the first one last year. We changed security, mixed bytes, and did consensus, consensus diligence fuzz and testing. So that's not an audit; that's a different type of uh, checks uh, for the contracts. Uh, and that set up a delay for like three months at least. But it did have results, so it's good that we did it. Um, then we also launched with very low limits for borrowing and very low limits for liquidity providers. Those limits actually have not grown because we were focusing on V2. So there was like no point in growing a half-assed product essentially while it's easier and quicker to deliver a second one which can then be put more attention to. Uh, it might not be the correct decision, you know, as I pointed out earlier, but uh, it's the one we made. Um, yeah. So, of course, in unified uh, bug bounty, generally bug bounty, low limits, more audits, uh, cross-checking with teams who we are integrating with whether some things that we did are correct and are supposed to work that way, and so on, so on. Developing almost any DeFi product uh, kind of implies that you have to be in close contact with a lot of people in the crypto community. Who are people or products that help you out, and uh, who would you like to highlight? Oh, true, true. Uh, so Lobster DAO members, of course, have been very supportive with the design ideas and community traction. Uh, well, of course, I'm affiliated, so I'm also, uh, I was a bit forced on that end, but thanks to all of them. Then also technical teams like uh, Andre Kronje, he left for now, but he probably will be back, who knows. He helped a lot. Uh, Wyron guys, Klim and Bantek. Uh, One Inch, Anton and Mikhail, Absolute Chat helped a lot. Um, and actually, a few other developer teams, um, I mean, I could I could quote a list, but it's very cool to see that if, when you're developing, you might be a bit upset that the general public is entitled, they scream at you, why you're not on Discord 24-7, even if you are. But end of the day, if you speak to teams, unless there is direct competition, they're always happy to help because everybody understands all of these things will eventually be connected with one another, unless it will become centralized, which nobody wants. Um, and as such, uh, you do get quite a positive sentiment. Uh, if they have the time, they would help you out with references with how to avoid certain vulnerabilities and things like that. So a DeFi space is cool in that, uh, in that respect. I'm not sure about NFT space because uh, I'm not sure how much there is to do. It's more like a, NFT space is more like a soft skill thing because it's more about talking and just giving some general, uh, I don't know, I might be a bit too rough, but general context on things. While DeFi, of course, is much more about code and development and uh, the real math stuff. Composable leverage uh, seems like a really great idea, which should kind of sell itself. Let's pretend we are in this so-called red team and consider some uh, worst possible scenarios. What difficulties in onboarding and getting access for the new users do you see in the future? Yeah, very good question. So... Leverage protocol by itself is about getting leverage, right? But here with Gearbox protocol, you have two sides to it. One, uh, passive liquidity providers, similar to those who go into other wire and wherever else. And the other ones who are taking the leverage to really trade, farm with it, and do uh, more active operations with it. So as such, it's a two-sided marketplace. And the fees within the protocol are also reflexive or dependent or rather vary the fees that will be outside of the protocol, depending, of course, whether one is bigger than the size of the other. So it's 
it's uh, it's more like if the protocol borrowing fees inside of it are really really high and the farming you get outside of it are going to be lower which is what happened with Alpha Hamora when we talked about leverage farming before, uh, they need to somehow either throw some liquidity mining into it or compensate or basically downscale the protocol to the point where the fees of borrowing are lower. Because uh, if you pay more than you get, right, usually you don't do it. Although crypto traders do it every day, <laughs> me included. Um, so onboarding users, for the liquidity provider side, the passive one, it's more so about talking about security and really showing how that is supposed to be passive and that is safe. Of course, nothing is safe, but that's the general sentiment that should be given in uh, messaging. So that one is a bit more trivial. On the leverage side, it's really not trivial because something like this wasn't done before since composable leverage allows you to have delta neutral farming strategies, uh, active farming strategies, leverage trading, and a bunch of other stuff. You can even like leverage into DOV options like in Ribbon or somewhere else. So potentially it's, all of those things. Um, so gas costs, of course, will be quite a thing, depending, of course, on the size of the trader. Um, availability of assets in certain contracts and farms being done on time and uh, for large enough sizes. Um, yeah, so that's all still being explored. It has been going really well so far, so humbled by the traction. But, uh, of course, the growth hasn't happened at all yet. There is much more to do. You explained a lot about uh, how users can make money, but let's talk about Gearbox. What's your business model? Could you please explain different ways uh, to make money for Gearbox? Mm -hmm. So Gearbox right now has three revenue avenues. Uh, they, were, they were just set up with the launch, so they weren't articulated on or thought through properly. They were just done there to have some stream going. So one is just the withdrawal fee and the LP passive side, similar as to Wiron had at the beginning. Uh, this will be removed later on, though. So this is not a good way to get income. You don't want to, like, be degrading to a user. So that will be gone. Uh, but for now, it, it works for the next couple of months, probably still. And then the more recurring things, of course, are the spread on the uh, borrow length uh, utilization curve. That is very similar to how AVA makes money. So that one, if you know how AVA compound make money on the spread, that's pretty much what you can envision here as well. And then also a liquidation fee taken uh, on the side of the leverage takers. So the credit accounts, as we call them, where users uh, interact with contracts, protocols, trading, farming. Um, there, there is liquidation fee. Uh, it is a question whether the liquidation fee should be large or small, because uh, if you compare it to centralized exchanges, what Gearbox has, the rates and everything up, pretty, pretty uh, humane. But uh, if you compare it to other DEXs, maybe they should be lowered. So... Um, there is still research going on that end because, of course, there are not that many protocols with large enough TVO to, you know, like competition in DEXs does not occur due to fees yet. Like if you are just used to, let's say there are two perpetual protocols, right, and you are used to one of them, you won't go to another one because you save like 10% in gas and let's say $100 on the liquidation possibly. You don't care for it or you don't want to set up a new interface. You don't want to learn a new interface. Um, it's only so... Unless you would say a high frequency trader, but then it's a question whether you can actually do such a thing profitably on chain too much. Um, I'm not talking about NEV, I'm talking about, um, let's say, DYDX Perpetual uh, and other protocols. So, yeah, fees on chain have been not a deciding factor, at least for DeFi, because you, most of the players are with large sums of money. But it is also why one of the reasons 
many smaller new users are priced out, and that's why they probably resort to NFT flipping, because uh, there is something they can actually do. Let's talk about the market more broadly. Is there anyone who you consider your direct competitors, and how do you differentiate? Um, direct competition, no, because Gearbox is more composable, more like a primitive. It, whatever perceived as competition can actually be integrated potentially. Uh, for example, you could build end-user strategies like with Wire or no, any other structured finance, but what more happens so is that the leverage you get in Gearbox, you can just funnel into those protocols. So you don't even have to build on Gearbox because the money can still flow into you. Um, it's more so that the products built on top can be competition to other things, but it's not the core protocol itself. So let's say Alpha Camorra does leverage farming, right? But those are end-user strategies, and they haven't had, I think, new ones for a long, long time. Uh, you could just rebuild the same strategies with Gearbox, or you could even deposit into Alpha Camorra potentially, right? So it's not directly competition. Um, DYDX, for example, allows leverage trading, but they allow for more efficient traders, while those who want to just trade altcoins or go into composable more passive positions don't need such a service. So um, the user segments in this regard are yet to be properly defined because uh, there are, of course, a bunch of smaller traders and there are a few larger ones. And larger ones, especially institutionals, they have no problem trading on be it uh, FTX or derivative for options uh, because those centralized platforms will always be more efficient they are less secure, of course. They are less composable, but they are more efficient for high-frequency trading. As far as I know, of course, I am not a trader myself. Uh, to make it crystal clear for our listeners, uh, who do you consider the target market for a product? Mm, for now, probably something along the realms of leveraged farming and composable positions, meaning delta mutual positions and things like that with different cross-collateral uh, that are a bit more passive rather than really active. So let's say if you want to actively trade Bitcoin futures that allow you for X50, you probably will do that on FTX or somewhere else because they're just more efficient there. If you want to go into composable strategies with farming, versus trading and things like that, that's where likely Gearbox will for now be better. And uh, it actually is the only way to do those things. There is no competition in that segment. But where it grows and how it grows is still not clear. Like, that's why the space is early. What are Gearbox's goals for the future? And how do you plan to accomplish these goals? Um, so, Dauk has been growing really well. Happy with it. Um, product traction. Yeah, yeah. there's even, a lot of sorry. people from the Dow in the audience. Oh, sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry. Oh, nice, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I also see it. Very cool to see, yeah. Uh, so the DAO has been amazing and humbling. Uh, it's really cool to see that working, like, let's say, without borders 24-7, uh, and some are just behind unknown pictures. Nobody cares for it about credentials or things. Uh, but that's, of course, the cool thing about DAOs. Um, so V2 is in audits and underway now. Uh, we are doing an e-global hackathon uh, in Amsterdam in April. Uh, so if you are there or some of the DexGuru team members would love to meet, in person again. Um, then V2 launching in May, and it's really about bootstrapping both sides of the market, whereas probably for LP, it's a bit more trivial, as I mentioned before, but for the leverage side, it's about giving those new opportunities, new assets, new farms to be involved in where more active DGNs can take leverage and participate in those. 
So, so far the plan kind of makes, you know, plans always make sense on picture, oh, sorry, on paper, uh, but you'll see how it is in action uh, when it's live, which should be, I think, even a month from now, probably. That's possible. Talking about plans and uh, kind of continuing being a red team, can you see any big roadblocks that lie ahead and uh, not related to technology or adoption? Well, for DeFi, legal things are always uh, a concern. Uh, of course, if law is very happy with it, of course, the general jurisdictions like US, Europe or whatnot, right? If law is lenient towards crypto and DeFi especially, then it does help foster adoption. Because usually during complete legal blockage, you do have some user segments that were distanced due to those laws, and then they actually become very active users. But your, your user base potential is then, of course, very, very limited. For example, if U.S. retail wasn't allowed to trade NFTs as freely as they can do it now, for example, on OpenSea without KYC or absolutely anything, we wouldn't have seen the same boom. Um, yes, yeah, so that stuff. Uh, everything else is basically technical, yeah. And uh, what's your position on the regulatory landscape today? Mm, well, it's still very much unknown, right? Uh, of course, protocols that are U.S.-based or the majority of team members are U.S.-based, they have, they, have, they have much more stringent policies to follow. Those outside, of course, do some geo, not geo-blocking, but they do, of course, watch out for these things to restrict some user barriers if the interface is open. Uh, but apart from that, it's still very much okay, you know. It could have been much worse. It's not uh, not allowed. It's not really, really allowed. For example, derivatives, I think, in UK have been banned over a year ago, right, whereas some protocols moved away from there. So it's very much unclear, but it doesn't seem too bad. So if it moves towards being worse, for example, some things happening in Europe now with, uh, as they call them, unhosted wallets, which is absolute retarded bullshit, but uh, people making regulations and laws usually um, at an age bracket, let's say. I'm not talking bad about people of age, but uh, making laws for technology that is very new cannot be done properly if you only learned how to use Skype. Like, that's just true. Sad, but true. What are I'm not trying to about... sound like an anarchist, you know, but it, it, it's in general, like, for example, uh, even generation of third-year-old, right, well-being, I think it's called Millennial Group, uh, they looked at TikTok and they were like, oh, wow, what is this new stupid stuff, right, why are kids spending time on it? even though the same people were spending a ton of time on ICQ back in the days, which also was kind of meaningless, right? So it's this weird thing that you just don't understand the next movement. So if you're really like 10 generations away from it, you, you surely won't get it. It's just logical. Of course, exceptions apply. I don't, again, don't want to sound like an anarchist or anything. What are thoughts about the future for the DeFi market? Um, <laughs> well, DeFi market is still very, very shadow coder related. So uh, it is fun. I find it fun. People in DeFi find it fun. But if you want any more user base to use it, uh, it, of course, has to be much more streamlined and made more easy. Uh, it doesn't have to be one-click buttons, but the interfaces should be easy. So it's a weird thing because if you build today and you make slick interfaces, uh, the general user base, the general user is still probably excited about NFTs, so they won't come to it because it, even slick interfaces require a level of understanding of finance 
and those users simply don't have it because it's a steep learning curve. So not making slick interfaces today, but focusing on whales and shadow recoders is probably the correct growth strategy. It's more so that once you get to that 1 billion or a few billion of TVL, then you need to think about getting institutional capital, general users and things like that. And that's what, he, that's what you see happening with other one-inch compound, for example, compound and Coinbase that's fixed for institutional rate rates depositing uh, with lending. Then it was one-inch going more towards interfaces, wallets, and just, let's say, uh, sillier user, less experienced user base uh, acquisition. Other doing the institutional pools. It might seem bad, silly, and things like that for OGs, right, for DeFi, but it's not, it's not something logical. Once your protocol grows from being a fun thing with friends and you still want it to grow and you still want to work on it, that's just the next general step, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all these insights. But we'd like to get to know you better. We believe people invest in people, and that's why we ask our guests to spend some time on personal questions. We want to understand your values and how they influence your decisions. And uh, my first question is, uh, when you think of the word successful in crypto and DeFi, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? I hope I won't go to jail for this question, so I'll get cancelled. Uh, this answers, I mean. Uh, successful. Um, I guess DeFi is about money, right? It's, a, it's literally finance. So you cannot not associate the word success with larger protocols. Uh, be it uh, Andre from Wyorn, uh, Michael Yegorov from Curve, Stani from Ave, and things like that. Um, not all of them are actually developers, uh, so some of them are not even coders, but they were moving this thing forward with, let's say, having a co-founder who is more so a technical person then. Uh, and usually, let's say, if you don't even define success with money, of course, non in non-DeFi space, uh, if you have been, if you would say value having a good network of developers, you value having fun developing the things that you like. Those kind of things in an abundant, abundantly growing venture world, they result in money. So even if you avoid it, you will be close to it. Unless you like practically, practically avoid it. But usually people don't go as far. Let's balance on this uh, canceling edge uh, a, a bit more with the question uh, which Peter Thiel likes. As I said, uh, what is something you believe that other people think is insane? In, insane in what context? Uh, in context of defining crypto. That is insane. Mm. I would say inflation being inflation, not like in the general term. I mean, like uh, protocol issuance being that high for those top protocols, but actually being bought out by other protocols and growing the valuations of those things uh, was something I didn't actually believe in. Because before it was always like, oh, unlock is happening, some inflation is happening, that's bad, right? More issues in the market, more dumping and whatnot. Uh, this cycle really showed us that if there is general move up, you can, as well, that goes as well for the stock markets, right? Uh, everything can go up however much you print, which I thought was insane. But now it's accepted and protocols actually shift towards doing that. Well, it's a bit unfortunate. The crypto landscape is very mosaic and there's a lot of people with opposing opinions. 
what do you consider the worst advice you see or hear in Define Crypto? The worst in Define Crypto? Mm. I mean, it is a wild west, so in what context? Could you please help me with the, with the context a bit? Uh, I mean, there's uh, a lot of, uh, you know, gurus, uh, besides of Dex Guru, uh, <laughs> who, who kind of tell people what to do, and uh, it's uh, opposing opinions, uh, so some of them are better than others, and some of them are worse, and uh, what do you consider the worst advice in, in, in investing? Hmm. I'm a shit trader myself, actually. So me saying something is the worst advice would probably be a good way for you to go buy or sell something. Um, probably the worst advice is go listening to those YouTube influencers. That's like the worst. You, you can't do anything worse than that. Uh, people who pretend to understand, but they don't understand anything. Uh, and, of course, in finance, due to, such, due to being such a complex thing and a very subjective one, those people have too much say. Uh, not that they shouldn't, but... It results in bad shit. I actually heard that, uh, you know, pervasive rumor that there's life beyond decentralized finance. So my next question is, uh, do you have any hobby? What obsessions do you explore in your free time, if you have any? That sounds like an attack. Uh, I don't know if there is any life be uh, beyond the computer. Uh, I, I like working, so I don't spend much time outside, which sucks, and I'll probably die young, but uh, oh well, I'll fix it later. You know, people have been saying at the beginning of this bull cycle, uh, they've been saying, oh, I will like pay attention to myself or like get friends or like do some stuff with family after the bull ends, right? It has been a delayed bull. <laughs> it has been for more than two years, and most are working 24-7, uh, those who haven't quit, of course. Uh, but uh, hobby, I like to play uh, Fortnite where nine-year-olds absolutely destroy me. So then I get angry and go back to uh, destroying them in DeFi. <laughs> uh, talking about Diane Young, everyone who builds in DeFi lives at a crazy pace and uh, it's pretty challenging to stay in shape. The daily routine is very important to stay productive. Uh, so do you have any morning rituals? And uh, what do the first hour of your day look like? Uh, no, I actually wake up and go straight to my computer. Uh, I'm lucky to have a fast metabolism so far. So I stay in shape enough, let's say. So I, I, I'm not yet uh, forced to do these things, but I think my age is getting closer to when I go need a personal trainer or go outside a bit more often. Uh, You're lucky indeed, uh, as well as uh, the vast majority of our guests, I believe, because uh, no one, you know, do yoga for four hours at the mornings. They go straight no, no, to no, the no, no. Discord, Twitter. Yeah, the, uh, YouTube influencers, YouTube influencers show like they, you know, like all those videos about like healthy life and shit like that, right? Wake up at 5 a.m. yoga for two hours, acai bowl or something like that. Total crap, nobody does that. Uh, anyway, I, I don't think any people in tech do that. That would be too much. What would actually constitute a perfect day for you? <laughs> I wouldn't know. 
I've been working since I was at school, then through university, and then now uh, for a few years. So uh, I never had the time of rest, rest. So as many people in tech and especially in crypto, uh, not working 24-7, but just let's say 12-7 is considered to be a break already. Like I know many people who go to dinner and then like after an hour, they just like, it's not that the conversations are boring or anything. It's just that you're so used to work that you genuinely want to go back and like actually do something. Um, it's, I don't know if it's healthy or not. Uh, if you perceive it as not healthy, you should change it. I, I don't say anything bad on it. Me neither. From Perfect Days, let's talk about perfect places. Is there some place in the world you have visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Uh, and in fact, no, but a place I liked, I guess it would be a very generic answer, but I was in Japan when I was 14. Uh, that was amazing. I would love to go back again. But for the past three years, there are, first it was a uh, virus, right? Then it was something else. Uh, then it's now the conflicts around the world. So it's not so difficult getting, as stupid as it sounds, it's not so difficult getting somewhere now if you want to travel. So uh, maybe that changes soon enough, I hope. So I want to go to Japan, yes. I, everybody wants to go to Japan, I would say. And it's... It's a normal destination for everybody. I think and Japan has, is, yeah. has some magic because uh, 7 out of 10 of our guests uh, answer this question with Japan. I mean, it's also like a, a meme in crypto, right? It's all about now, it has been about hentai, anime, and things like that. And uh, it's not that people are forced to like it. It's just that it happened that many of the people already like this kind of stuff. So uh, I know, of course, manga is also in Korea and China, but... Uh, Japan is more perceived so to be culturally associated with it. Um, yeah. What was the best investments you have made? And uh, I'm not talking about money. It could be time, energy, or any other resources. Mm, probably time from not pursuing my legal career, which was fucking dead boring. Sorry for my French. Uh, and instead, I was actually... <laughs> it's funny, it's this. I was learning to trade. You know, all of this technical analysis and charts, that's basically how I got to crypto. I thought I would be able to find patterns and trade them with profits. <laughs> Absolute horseshit. So I was watching YouTube videos, obviously, for that. Uh, it's, it's, it's all for gazy. Do you have any book or any other piece of content that you can recommend to our listeners? Um, I unfortunately don't have enough uh, attention span to read books for the past few years. That sucks. I mostly read literally, like, I don't know, tech articles or things like that. Not like media articles. No, that's, that's death. Um, no, I don't think I get an educational, to be honest. Just generally following uh, builders on Twitter and whatever Vitalik posts and other things do, like when they do long reads, they are genuinely very composed of uh, a few interesting points that can tie you well to your past experience, career, or something like that. So um, I find that to be educational enough, which probably says I'm stupid, but fuck it. It's okay. Sorry. Sorry. I don't think it sounds stupid. Uh, it's just uh, compressed content. Yep. Basically, yep. Talking about uh, books and compressed content, do you have a quote you live your life by or think about often? Mm, I'm probably going to be generic on this one as well, but uh, the only constant is, uh, what was the quote? Only constant is change, something like that. 
It's like nothing is ever constant. Things change and people uh, always forget that. Like it comes the same with the innovation, right? Uh, mo most of the innovative things are just well forgotten past stuff. So yeah, only constant is change. Well, actually those two contradict each other now that I think of it. Let's choose the first one. Only constant is change. Next question is related a bit. If you could have one gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? So I need to put a billboard somewhere. Yep. Anywhere. Buy my shitcoin. I mean, you, you set it up. You set me up. So what else could I say? No, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would buy a billboard to put anything on. I, I don't see the point of it. Let's Probably see. like advertise something I'm working on. It seems logical. Join Lobsudao then. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Join your boss, join Lobsudao. That sounds fun. Let's dream a little. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about the future, or present, or anything else, what would you want to know? Hmm. Let's start with you. What, what would you do? What would you ask, or what would you want to know? Who's Satoshi? I don't care that much, honestly. But it's kind I mean, of fun. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Um, I don't think the information, that information would would be fun for yourself, right? but that information probably wouldn't be good for the actual industry, right? Because if it ends up being some famous person who others don't like, might influence, like, that's the point of it, to not have personal affiliation. And that's what's cool about Web3, uh, well, the real Web3, right? You don't have an identity or past credential attached to it that is just a vaporware. You do have, of course, credential and identity attached if you were building something, and that's uh, more or less verifiable. That's cool, right? Your past work, I think, should be. But uh, attaching something to a person or their beliefs, unless they are, of course, too radical and to an extent uh, derogatory, shouldn't really be done, right? You, you don't really care for what they are as long as they contribute value. But, of course, this is only possible, like, in smaller groups. As groups grow... Uh, you always have more, uh, that always changes, of course. Like in small groups, nobody cares for who the others are. As you grow, people start doing personal affiliations. Uh, but they're just logical. I think it's actually a book I wrote. Uh, I, I, sorry, not wrote, obviously. <laughs> a book I read. Uh, it was something about um, boom, boom, networks. It's some famous cliche starting book about networks, which explains it from the social standpoint. Um, network theory. Might have been something, something about that shit, yeah. Well, uh, some people... No, let's assume time travel is possible. What advice would you give to your five years younger self and by extension to our listeners who only start their uh, journey in DeFi? Uh, well... There is no point in trying to tell them to avoid something because people don't learn unless they mistakes. So probably if you start something and go DGEN and you learn all of it, consume as much as possible and just don't just be theoretical with it. Actually, ape into farms, try different protocols, just don't do it with huge sums of money before 
you more or less understand what's happening, um, I guess that would be general advice. It's definitely worth it to do something in it because whatever direction the space takes, uh, you will be knowledgeable in things around finance and just in general growth, marketing, community management, which are easily tied to other industries. Like many of the NFT people and, product, uh, and NFT projects are ex-DeFi people. Not that they understand anything in art, it's just that NFTs are less about art and more about community branding and, let's say, that thing that crypto was driving forward in a way. Uh, yeah. It's definitely better than the other opportunities you see around. It's it's worth it. Uh, I think there is, like, most of the people who are in tech have been saying that if you, let's say, a student or just after university go into this stuff uh, because your risk, your downside risk is very, very minimal because you don't have any assets or reputation to lose, but your upside is incredible. And, of course, if you, let's say, fail on this journey, which, of course, can happen, your plan B will be other people's plan A. Uh, I had the same thinking when I was at uni, honestly. Um, you can always go back to the career you were pursuing before. Only changes are constant. Yeah. Some people have lists of crazy things like skydiving or going to Antarctica or going into space. Is there something you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Probably the things that you mentioned and, and, other, and like other, whatever cool things to do list people have, I would probably relate to most of this stuff. Uh, in crypto, it's a bit difficult to do because if, especially if you're on the building side, you really can't get out for more than a week. I, I haven't even done a week, you know, because everything is evolving so fast and all of the protocols are reintegrating with each other and whatnot. And even though it might not have that much, but I, I feel like following the general trend of what protocols do and why they change is important. So if you are actually building, um, you, I don't think you can really get out. It's like being in a startup in Silicon Valley like five years ago. As long as you're building and you're not at the stage of growth that you are more or less happy with, you just probably have to, let's say, uh, work a bit more uh, wage cock slave, whatever mean you use. Uh, it will be 24-7 work, but you are working towards a, a final goal, whether it's monetary or being successful in terms of recognition in the space, whatever you like yourself, uh, and then you can probably take rest later. And it might be a bit of a toxic advice because especially in trading, people just go like this for 10 years straight. But, uh, yeah, I guess you also should know at what time to stop later on. Sounds like uh, if you go into skydiving, uh, you will take your laptop with you right in the uh, sky. I actually, I, I booked skydiving once and then I went to have food very late at night and I came back home at 2, not drunk or anything, just had food really late at night. Uh, and then they had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. And I was like, ah, screw that. So I didn't go skydiving. Skydiving sucks. I don't know. But what? Um, may, maybe it's fun. But it's not Eating worth... Is, uh... Eating is more fun. No, it's not worth waking up at 6 a.m. Nothing is. I, yeah. I, I can't do that. Well, what in your life do you feel the most grateful Mm. Yeah, probably a bunch of personal things. So I, I don't know if the answers will be uh, that applicable, honestly, in the audience. Unless you rephrase the question a bit, then I can maybe be a bit more specific. Well, uh, we won't go uh, more personal than it's uh, when it's okay with you. Uh, 
so it was my last question. And uh, my very last question is, uh, do you have any ask or request or advice for our audience? Some last parting words. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I just before the uh, call, uh, I played with DexGuru interface a bit. I was very surprised it loaded so sleek and fast and mobile, you know. It was a browser version that opens up within Twitter app, right? So that, those usually really suck and they take a lot of time. But that one opened really fast for me and everything displayed properly. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, please come work with Gearbox, whoever the developer is. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, let's do some integration later on. But, okay, for the audience, uh, no, I guess uh, if anybody is wondering more about DeFi or just building or just researching and aping a bit, uh, not trading, screw that. Uh, free to join Lobster DAO is a more fun thing. And if you want to actually try to pursue a career in Web3, uh, also welcome to Gearbox and to use it later on, of course, in, in a month or so. For now, it's an old version, so it's not as fun. Thank you for kind words about DexGuru. We put a lot of work here. And thank you for coming on the show. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, a great list of questions. It was very fun. A good Monday start for the week. And uh, yeah, good luck with building. You guys have been shipping well and looking forward to your next steps as well. Thank you. It's uh, good to hear especially from you. Thank you. And thank uh, you. Uh, and uh, thanks I for the audience for listening. Yeah. Good luck in all your future endeavors as well. Thank you, thank you. Probably we'll meet one day. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Hope so. And thanks to all our listeners. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. We are glad to have you here and wish you all the best in your life and career. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Discord. If you are new to the show, we release a new episode every few days. For those of you who are regular listeners, please share the show with those around you. We will be back soon with more insights from expert guests from across the world. Have a great day. See you next time.